Hello, this is Martin Page, and this is part two of a Radio Owl's Nest special of the making of In the House of Stone and Light. It's the story behind my debut album, released in 1994 on Mercury Records. Hopefully, you uh, have listened to part one of the story, because this is part two. The songs are written, and now it's time to bring the band together. And the most important thing about a band to me is the rhythm section. That means the drummer and the bass player. The bass player was me, the drummer was Jimmy Copley. Jimmy Copley I'd met when I was working with Kurt Smith, and he knocked me out. What a soulful, incredibly funky drummer. Behind every song, to me, is the skeleton, the body of the rhythm section. If the rhythm section is strong, if the skeleton is strong, the song stands a great chance of being strong. It's all about the foundation. If I make the foundation strong, I can bring everybody else in on top of my songs and uh, will be solid from the beginning to the end. So after finishing the songs, the first person to reach out to was Jimmy Copley, the drummer. And I sent him a cassette of all 10 songs, the demos. And uh, Jimmy studied those. And then I flew him over from London and we rehearsed for two weeks in a LA rehearsal studio. Just Jimmy and myself. I was gonna just work on the body and the guts of uh, the album. Now Jimmy is one for studying and listening to every aspect of a demo. So when I sent him the songs on the cassette, I sent him the song and then I sent him a cassette of the drum machine part of the song separately. So he could hear the emotion of the piece and he can also hear the arithmetic, the skeleton, the groove of my drum programming. Now Jimmy was renowned for being a drummer of superb live feel who could emulate what a songwriter or a producer had programmed on a drum machine. Just listen to all the work that Jimmy did with Tears for Fears and uh, you'll understand what I'm saying. You could send Jimmy uh, a complicated drum rhythm. Um, in fact, like in the House of Stone and Light, which had, if you listen to the bass drum, quite a sophisticated uh, hard rhythm to play live. Well, Jimmy was notorious for listening to drum machine programs and emulating them live with feel perfectly. So at the rehearsal studio in the Valley in Los Angeles, just Jimmy and I worked for two weeks on all of the songs of the album. We uh, set up a big PA system that played the DATs, uh, which were rough mixes of my demos without the bass and without, uh, of course, live drums, but with the drum machine playing quite loud. We rehearsed against that like a live performance. It was almost like we were playing live with a band. My demo had chords, pads, vocals, all the other things you would need in a band, but without the bass, which I was playing live, and without Jimmy. So it was really the organic uh, structure of the demo that both Jimmy and I were playing on as a rhythm section. It was the birth of a rhythm section. That's how I saw the beginning of House. If we were able to integrate our playing together, uh, Jimmy and myself, and to get tight, well then, the album um, had great foundations. Over those two weeks, we discussed the arrangements, 
Uh, I changed my bass parts. Uh, Jimmy would change his initial uh, ideas for the drums as we worked together. It was really like we were um, a band, just the two of us. And I think that's what made the record um, quite special. I truly believe that the two of us together, right at the beginning, that was what made the album um, very focused, very real, and it had a potential to become bigger. And besides that, Jimmy and I just laughed our asses off. <laughs> I miss him, and uh, our time together was much too short. After those two weeks of rehearsal, we moved up to a studio in Calabasas, a famous studio called the American Recording Company. And uh, that was a studio used for Three Dog Night back in the 70s. It had a great, great live room, great for drums. Now, if you've got Jimmy Copley on drums, you need a brilliant drum engineer. And that engineer I picked was Ed Thacker. Now, Ed had a formidable history, uh, if you look into it. Uh, and of course, he came from that era working with live drums, Supertramp in particular. So I hired Ed Thacker to record the superb drumming of Jimmy Copley. Now, at American Studios, it was all important to uh, get the atmosphere. So all around the live room, even in the control room, I lit tons of candles. And Jimmy eventually complained that he couldn't breathe and there was no air for him to play drums in. So we doused a few out, but we kept a few on. And there we recorded the 10 tracks, the 10 drum tracks. That's all we concentrated on, was getting the right drum tracks. We played each song twice, so we did two takes. And then later on, I would choose the best take from the two tracks that uh, Jimmy had played for me. Now, back in those days, it's analog recording. So we were on tape and we had a recording board in American studios that had a lot of tube amplifiers. And we had a couple of uh, Neve EQs that I brought in for Ed. And so we were looking to get uh, a lot of richness, a lot of uh, depth, a lot of realness on the tape. So we'd done two weeks in rehearsals with Jimmy, and then we did a whole week of recording of drums, uh, just Jimmy, and a bit of me playing bass. Uh, I'd laid some of the bass down on the tape so he could play to it, but it was mainly looking at Jimmy. Jimmy was the focus. I knew the album was well on its way if I got Jimmy right. And Jimmy Copley was amazing. It was quite a revelation for me, because Jimmy played a very high, piccolo snare, a real whiplash of a snare. And against my voice, I learned at that point that that worked really well and uh, really helped the songs. So when I walked away from American Studios with the tapes under my arm, it was really just two players, myself and Jimmy. But I knew that I had the map, the sketch of what I needed to bring other musicians in on the tracks. I could now bring players into my home studio and they could work on a sketch pad that I trusted and I knew was solid. Thank you, Jimmy. So now it was time to work at my home studio. 
uh, my studio was in the garage, but my living room, which was next to the garage, I was going to use that as the live amplifier room. So I spent quite a bit of time putting all bedding and all manner of clothing up against the window so that the neighbours wouldn't hear the incredible volume that was going to come from this little house. In fact, my, my whole house became um, a studio. Um, the kitchen area was changed into a live room. Um, and the bathroom was going to be used for putting some reverb on vocals, etc. The whole house. It became uh, my recording facility. And I felt very content and very safe and in a good situation to work um, in the garage and in this house. I'd really got to know the way the sonics were, um, how to move around the equipment in my own domain. So it was a perfect place to bring the initial analog tapes back to uh, work on. The tapes that uh, Jimmy Copley and myself on bass had prepared for the rest of the musicians and for me to sing lead vocals on. Although there were some vocals on the tracks, a lot of those were guides. So my first job was to sing the actual lead vocals. That was the first gig. To get the master lead vocals down uh, on top of the rhythm section. Now to me, um, the lead vocal has to work well with the snare drum beat. Uh, I really feel strong about that. I, I always have, all through my career. The vocal is linked to the backbeat, and the backbeat is linked to the lead vocal. Something magic happens between those two. They communicate in a really, really special way. Now that I had Jimmy's master drums chosen and working on them at home, I had to really focus on the lead vocals. Now most of my lead vocals were guides, but I knew that some of those guides were going to be incorporated in the final vocal. I'm a great believer in that some of the early performances you do as a lead singer, you have to keep those because some magical things happen. The moment you start to get over tight and think about it too much, well then you, many times you will lose the initial inspiration of an early guide vocal. And as I said before, I like doing phonetic vocals, so I like the sound of vocals. So it was about really singing lead vocals and incorporating them into some of the guide vocals and into some of the very, very early organic performances. A very important process. So I, I basically spent about two months on my own doing lead vocals on top of the rhythm section that I brought back from uh, working with Jimmy. And I spent a lot of time just trying to think about the performance, what I was singing about. And uh, I had a great Neumann U87 vintage microphone, and I was going through uh, the best analog equipment you could be going through, which was Massenburg EQs and Massenburg limiters, and an LA 2A limiter as well. So my chain, my vocal chain going to tape, was very authentically vintage and that really helped um, the performances, I believe, because there was a richness there from the beginning. So slowly, the lead vocals uh, appeared, and uh, through that two-month period, I was playing it to my executive producer, my manager, Diane Poncher, who sometimes said, go back and do that again, um, and you could get this better, and you could uh, think about this when you sing it. So great help, um, and I think that's uh, very important to state here. I had, uh, although I was on my own doing these lead vocals, eventually I had somebody in Diane I trusted uh, who uh, had seen these songs grow 
right from the early demo stages when there might have just been a title. And now she was hearing uh, my lead vocals, the lyrics and performances for the first time with uh, drums and bass around it. So that's how I saw really strong structure, you know, a really, really strong lead vocal, basically emotional lead vocal. The vocals had to be so believable with a great drum performance and rhythm section. To me, uh, that, that pinnacle, the lead vocal on top of a strong ship, a strong boat, uh, the rhythm section, well then I think you can really see um, from that moment on how you're going to augment your lead vocal and the rhythm section to other players. I'll mention here that my procedure was to sing a song six times. Maybe if it was uh, a little bit tougher, maybe I'd move up to eight, but I would sing six lead vocals uh, from pure um, emotional response. And then I would compile the best moments from those six tracks. That's how the lead vocal um, was formed. And when um, I had that lead vocal, well, then it was time, time to bring other players into the picture. And that was the next stage, to bring in other performances by other musicians to decorate and advance the tracks. I mentioned earlier that working with Maurice White, um, I got a real sense when he was working with uh, Earth, Wind and Fire and on his solo record that uh, this great ability to allow musicians to add to the tracks and the songs in their own way and for the musicians to feel um, relaxed, inspired and um, very content and free to do their best work. And by working at home, I had time. I could allow the musicians to uh, do their best work without looking at the watch and worrying about uh, money bills going up. Back in my days in England, you went into the studio for six hours and you did an album in six hours. And if you didn't, you didn't have an album. But here in my home studio, I could really let uh, creativity lead the way. And I've said many times that I feel like a studio is a church of sound and a church of creation. So I'll talk to you with a stream of consciousness here about all the musicians that dropped by to my house, my home studio, and added um, their essence to this record. I really wanted a great atmosphere in my home studio, so yes, there was lots of uh, visual aids. Incense burning, we had um, objects placed in the studio to inspire spirituality. Um, this felt like uh, a really a great thing to do because once a musician who's obviously going to feel a little bit tense and nervous as he's creating, he could slowly relax into a great place where he felt like he was at home and get lost in the music. Also, I mentioned early on that I'm a great compiler of performances. So I just wanted each musician to play from their heart and not to think too much about uh, parts. And I would then, when they leave, I would compile the best of their performances and then, in a way, get a tapestry together of their best work. A lot of the musicians that played on the album didn't know um, what was going to be on the record at the end of the day. And when they heard House of Stone and Light, they used to say to me, I, I can't remember doing that. And did I really play that? So um, that was the wonderful thing about having a home studio where players could just perform their spirit and then I could compile after from performances exactly how I saw the painting and the tapestry. So on to the musicians. I'll talk first about Bill Dillon, uh, the wonderful Canadian guitarist that I met when I was working with Robbie Robertson. He came to work with me on the album for about four to five days. 
Now, with Bill Dillon, you have to have um, cappuccinos, very strong coffee, continually, always on the go. He constantly drank black coffee. I don't know how he did it. And he constantly smoked. So every now and then, I couldn't see him in the studio for the fog of smoke. So the studio garage door was opened up, out went the smog, and then I went, oh, there you are, Bill. I can see you again. Bill um, had this incredible setup on his guitar, which is called a guitorgan. And uh, it's a mixture of a organ and a guitar. Um, and he used to get a blend, uh, which was phenomenal. Very, very unusual. An incredible purveyor of uh, the volume pedal as well. And Bill is one of these musicians where you don't really show him the chord sheet or the music sheet. He just has to listen to it while he's drinking coffee and while he's smoking, both at the same time. And then he would just say, let me have a go at this. He loved to be um, guided in the spiritual side of the song. So with Bill, you would talk about where the lyrics were coming from and what the emotion was behind the song. Now, in the living room, I had a setup of a matchless uh, amplifier setup and an AC30. And so, um, and, and I think I had a, a twin reverb, so a Fender twin reverb. So Bill could choose what kind of amplifier he wanted to use. He didn't have to bring all his gear except for his pedals and his guitar. I had that very that room next to the garage which was had all the bedding and all the uh, sheets and clothes propped up against the windows. Um, and as I mentioned before, Jeff Lorenzen, that young engineer, had helped me early on uh, get that all set up. But then it was just me and Bill. And Bill would uh, play maybe on about five or six songs from the album, he would add maybe six or seven guitar parts. And each guitar part after he performed it, I would basically let it go. Because I think, again, like doing vocals, uh, some of the first run-throughs, where there are mistakes, uh, but there are also golden moments. Um, and Bill is an extremely uh, feel uh, musician. It's all from the heart. Uh, he's, uh, I wanted to pick guitarists that played on this record that had all different styles. And for me, Bill was a symphonic player, almost like a vocalist. He had a, a unique way of bending notes and making the music sound symphonic and orchestrated. Um, and just because there was uh, so much to think about here, I'm going to mention two songs which he played on absolutely beautifully, and that would have been Put On Your Red Dress, and he played some acoustic things in the chorus, and uh, a mashup of beauty. But particularly on the song In My Room, uh, the personal song about uh, my mother's childhood, he played a part we called The Crying Guitar. And that is uh, just something that sticks in my mind as um, so emotionally um, penetrating and amazing. Now I'll talk to you about Neil Taylor, a guitarist that um, I'd met working with uh, Jimmy Copley and uh, working on the Kurt Smith album. Uh, now, a totally different kind of guitarist in many ways to Bill Dylan. Um, totally different um, approach. An amazing rhythmic player and parts player. Neil will find parts um, in the telephone book. He'll just, <laughs> he just can put together a, a part in two seconds that you just sit back and say, what a 
incredible rhythmic part. Um, he is one of those guitarists that can touch all styles, but also he has this sense of rock about him, which I think he was a great fan of T-Rex, Mark Boland. Um, he has an edge, but incredibly funky as well. So if you can imagine a T-Rex being Earth, Wind & Fire, <laughs> or, sh or Chic, meeting T-Rex or Bebop Deluxe, you've got um, somehow, that's where Neil sort of um, comes from. Uh, he's one of those guitarists that I found to be um, spontaneous. I mean, it, you, he will look at the chord sheet very quickly, but then he'll just listen to what you're saying and off he goes. And I would say he just fills the tracks up with parts. He gives you options galore. And then at the moment when you say, could I have a solo, Neil? Uh, up goes the volume, uh, and it happens. I mean, it, that it just happens. What I was amazed about with Neil is he said he wasn't trained and he plays by ear. It's hard to believe that because um, he, he has such an incredible sense of musicality. It was great to take him out on the road with me. Another player that smoked a lot at that time, and so, again, the room would fill up with smoke and we'd have to open the door, and then I'd say, oh, there is Neil. Um, but Neil added some superb parts to these tracks. If you listen to the title track in the House of Stone and Light, the rhythmic parts you hear are Neil. And if you listen particularly to Monkey in My Dreams, that is Neil uh, pumping away there with so many great, uh, in a way, uh, Hendrix meeting rock, meeting uh, soulful funk. Um, what can I say about Neil except for he is Neil Taylor, an original. And the glue um, to uh, both Bill Dylan to me and uh, Neil Taylor was my partner and uh, my great friend uh, from the beginning of my musical career, Brian Fairweather. Uh, Brian is, an, is just, uh, for me, the all-rounder. Um, he, he, he understands me so well so that when he hears my songs um, and, and the way I talk to him about what I imagine, well, Brian puts it into place. He was the glue, really, between the, to me, the symphonic guitars of, uh, of Bill Dylan, um, the rhythmic and um, vibrant guitars of Neil Taylor. I saw Brian seeing the whole, whole picture very clearly. Now, Brian's a great songwriter as well, and that's really where he, he shone for me as a guitarist, because he was a songwriter with me from the beginning of time. So when he played his parts and when he looked for his sounds, he had that producer's hat on and that songwriter's hat on. I always wondered um, but why he wasn't a session guitarist in America. He wanted to concentrate on songwriting, but um, just a superb um, all-round uh, musical force. So I had Brian playing a lot of beautiful parts. And in fact, I can point towards the nylon guitar that you'll hear on the song In My Room. That's all Brian. And then I was very fortunate to have Robbie Robertson playing on the title track. As I mentioned in part one, that Robbie had um, been encouraging me to make a solo record. And uh, when I decided to do that, he uh, graciously said, I'll play some guitar for you. I'd like to. And so I brought over the uh, master tapes from my home studio to his studio at the Village Recorder. And I left him alone for about two, two weeks. And I think he transferred it to his tape machine, which I think was a Mitsubishi uh, digital machine. And he sent me back after those uh, couple of weeks about four tracks that he'd worked on. He'd actually compiled them. Um, he'd been basically working on the, on the track like a producer. So 
but I didn't have to do much work. There were the guitar parts, and they were arranged. And uh, my goodness, you know, um, you'll hear his guitar on the beginning of In the House of Stone and Light. And uh, recently, when I listened to the tracks again, I realized that I, you don't hear him too much on the track. Um, and he's mixed in with everybody else. But then when, when I heard his guitar parts uh, soloed a little bit louder in the tracks recently in a rough, I was like, my goodness me, I have to uh, allow the world to hear this. Uh, what beautiful, um, authentic blues, authentic soul, authentic spirit. Um, Robbie's parts um, were just um, spiritual. That's the best way I could put it, really. He saw this song coming from his Indian heritage as a song he could really relate to. Um, he instantly uh, told me that uh, he got the message of this song. So uh, pretty special, really, that with uh, Robbie's heritage, he was playing on In the House of Stone and Light. Unfortunately, we couldn't get him on some more tracks. He wanted to play on Keeper of the Flame, but uh, things pulled us away from each other then. But if you listen to the beautiful bends uh, of on In the House of Stone and Light with the chorus effect on, that will be um, Robbie Robertson. And he added, um, I think, a wonderful dimension to the song. And like, a, I suppose, a tapestry or a painting, I had Jack Hughes um, from the band Wang Chung. He'd become a very good friend of mine. And when I'd worked with him, when we were writing songs together, um, I, he, he was playing guitar with me a great deal. And I was like, my goodness, I will need you to play um, guitar on my solo record. So that angular, exciting uh, Jack Hughes' uh, musicality does appear on this album on a several tracks. Jack added a totally different uh, crystalline energy to the tracks. He, uh, he brings in his great knowledge of uh, chords, um, notes. He's a, a trained musician, and so he hears um, things I don't hear. <laughs> and thank goodness um, he was able to portray that. You'll hear him a lot on Monkey in My Dreams. Uh, and he actually sings on a few of the tracks as well. So uh, very, very, very lucky to have the great originality and great musical mind of Jack Hughes involved. Now I think it's time to move to uh, keyboard overdubs. Although I'd done a lot of the keyboards on the demos and a lot of the sounds I was going to keep, uh, I always, always wanted to have a contribution by PJ Moore, um, the Blue Nile uh, soundscape man and keyboardist. I'd made great friends with uh, Blue Nile and particularly with PJ, um, and I'd used him, utilized him on a few of the albums I'd been producing around that time, and we got on very, very well. What an unusual vision. PJ offers you something different. Uh, he totally comes at sound in uh, an original way. Listening to those Blue Nile records, um, you know, particularly Walk Across the Rooftops and Downtown Lights, uh, Hats, ridiculous um, where his mind is taking sonics. So to have PJ involved was a treat for me. And uh, he came to my house and uh, I set up a keyboard that he always works on and knew inside out, which was a Jupiter 8. A Roland Jupiter 8. How he made those sounds from that keyboard, I'll never know. I also had a DX7 too, which is very hard to program. Uh, but PJ said, mm, I think I can get around that. And uh, PJ just added sonics and atmosphere that uh, I think exploded the um, emotions of this record. 
You'll hear him quite clearly on the beginning of Put On Your Red Dress. That's his keyboards fading up. And he added uh, things on like I Was Made For You and a lot of the, and even on House of Stone and Light, when you, you think it's orchestrated, but it's basically coming from a very, very romantic, crimson, slightly dark, but hopeful um, viewpoint. It's hard to put in words, um, but I think because of the Scottish background of uh, PJ, uh, a lot of rain, <laughs> a lot of grey skies, but also sun was peeking through. So I was very, very grateful to let PJ do his thing. A point here, which I found very unusual, is he would look at the chord sheet that I'd written down, and he had a different way of looking at chords. He almost wrote it like uh, Asian, backwards. And uh, instead of going uh, linear across the page, he wrote uh, chords and the notes in the chords down the page from top to bottom. And uh, he didn't have to be told if it was a G minor seventh. He just wanted to know the notes. And he would make um, his own um, approximation of what those chords were. And that's why you get some amazing uh, confrontations of notes and uh, blends and sustains and drones. Um, he, he heard the notes in the chord, but he also heard something else. Uh, hard to put in words, but when uh, PJ added to the tracks and to the bed of keyboards that I'd written, um, I, I could just see another landscape appearing. And it was a Celtic, uh, Gaelic landscape uh, that he touched upon. And I think that really um, complemented the concept of In the House of Stone and Light in general. Going to move on now to a vocalist that came across to help me on the song Light uh, in Your Heart. Very, very fortunate to have Brenda Russell stop by for an afternoon and uh, sing harmonies with me on that song. What a special lady. Uh, over the recording of the album, I'd been listening to Light in Your Heart and my background vocals and thinking, great, but it would be lovely to get a different approach, a different... Uh, taste involved with my backgrounds and uh, Brenda just came to mind I'd met her in LA as a songwriter and she had such a great um, character and spirit about her also a wonderful tone in her voice so um, she agreed to come across uh, have a cup of tea with me listen to a few songs and she said let's jump in on lighten your heart she also does some great step outs some great scats um, towards the end of the song which again I just think uh, added a little bit of the uh, jewelry uh, uh, on this song gave it a sense of um, worldliness really I um, think it just opened the whole track up when you you felt a different nature with me um, the whole chorus um, for me widened and uh, got more real and again what a lovely person and so far <laughs> and I could remember throughout the album I was very lucky to have just lovely people great people that were in in it for the right reasons and uh, Brenda obviously was one of those great souls and talking about great souls that leads me on to the great singer Jeffrey Oriema um, I'd seen him singing with Peter Gabriel in the WOMAD concerts and as soon as I heard his tone I thought wouldn't it be brilliant to have that low African heart involved in the House of Stone and Light. So I contacted uh, Real World and uh, my manager contacted um, Peter Gabriel and we asked if he would be available if he would allow uh, Jeffrey Oriema because Jeffrey Oriema was signed to Real World Records. We wondered if we could uh, Prize him away from the touring and uh, have him at my house for a day. 
And uh, they were wonderful. They were good people and they said absolutely. Very lucky that the WOMAD tour was uh, local and near me at that time. And we worked it out that uh, Jeffrey could stop on by my house. Uh, he was staying, and I put him in a hotel very near my, my home, and he dropped in. And what a lovely man he was. I'd given Peter Gabriel a tape of my record uh, early on, and uh, he wrote back to me. He was uh, touring in Chile, and he was in the, mount the Chilean mountains, and he said, listening to this album while he was up there in the mountains, he said, uh, very special indeed. He said my music was very suited to uh, traveling in these kinds of areas and he blessed Jeffrey working with me. Now Jeffrey is as big as me, he's a very big man and uh, when he came into my house I thought oh two, two very tall men, this is a small studio, how are we going to work this out? But uh, his uh, whole being was very very warm and as soon as I played him the two tracks in the House of Stone and Light and Keeper of the Flame, those are the songs I thought he could really add to he uh, he said yes uh, I, I think this is going to be great I do recall that um, he contemplated these two songs for quite a while he seemed to want to take it very deeply um, under his skin interesting that he sat down next to me in the studio and I had uh, the engineer Jeff Lorenzen set up a microphone between me and Jeffrey and I sang along and then Jeffrey got used to the tracks and uh, I remember that he did his vocals, all the harmonies with me, um, sat down. Uh, well, two big men, they had to sit down to fit into the studio. But if you listen hard to the harmonies, the low harmonies on Keeper of the Flame and In the House of Stone and Light, you'll hear um, the uniqueness, the deepness, the richness of um, Jeffrey's great harmony singing. Now there are two songs, uh, Light in Your Heart and I Was Made For You. I was um, having a problem with the rhythm on these tracks. I was struggling. I wasn't sure I'd got uh, the basic drums right on those two tracks. Now if you listen to uh, part one, uh, you'd have heard about how I met with, um, uh, by accident, Phil Collins. And we talked about Phil working on my album. So I thought here's the great chance to have Phil uh, work on these two ballads. So when Phil came to my house and I played him these two tracks, um, I said, I'm struggling with these. I'm not sure I've got it right. And Phil said, yes, I think I know exactly what to do here. And he practiced, uh, as I said, on his kneecaps. And he said, let's get going. Let's get this done. And so we booked uh, A&M Studios in Los Angeles. I remember that he called my man. My manager called him and said, uh, what do you need, Phil? And he said, I need these special Phil Collins drumsticks. Yes, he, uh, he needed his own drumsticks to play on these tracks. And um, my manager got them for him. He was that kind of man. You know, it's like, I can hear what you need and uh, just get a room, get a drum kit, give me my own drumsticks and let's make some noise. Um, and we were there at A&M Studios bright and early one day and I was lucky to have Ed Thacker, the great uh, engineer, working with Phil. Ed Thacker had a great legacy of working with uh, live bands. It wasn't easy, even in 1994, to have an engineer, find an engineer who knew how to record live drums. And Ed had done great work, I mean, with bands like Supertramp. So when Phil sat down at his drum kit and he realised that Ed was miking his drum kit perfectly, uh, there was great confidence in the air. I think there's a bond made between a great drummer, great live drummer, and a great uh, recording engineer. And I saw that happening with my own eyes. I'd grown up with early Genesis and every aspect of early Genesis I felt very close to. 
There were years in my youth when I was in South Carolina and I fell upon the album Selling England by the Pound and Nursery Crime. And I was away from my friends in England and those two albums uh, became very special to me. I remember watching a TV show, Midnight Special, and watching Genesis play Watcher of the Skies. And I thought, dear me, that drummer is pretty fantastic. And it was pretty fantastic and amazing that I had Phil Collins here playing on my songs. This was a period when Phil was a huge recording star, uh, dominating the airwaves. And, and as a songwriter, I thought he's going to really uh, connect with, hopefully connect with Light in Your Heart and I Was Made For You. I felt, you know, those drummers that are songwriters, they have an insider's view of how to analyze uh, song rhythms. And on Light in Your Heart, as soon as Phil started to play, it was unusual. He was uh, bubbling on the snare and the chorus, and almost the kick was like a reggae, drum, reggae kick. Um, I wasn't sure about this, but my manager, who was in the control room with me, said, live with this. Uh, live with this concept. And very soon I realized something was actually coming together here. Uh, I was I was quite shocked actually because Light in Your Heart suddenly came together with uh, great fluency and a sense of um, primal um, groove. Phil just knew uh, truly how to approach a ballad and I don't think that's the easiest thing for a drummer. Phil did that on Light in Your Heart and then we were on to I Was Made For You and he started with this really unusual rolling tom feel. Phil had a great sense of, I think, the way the bass moved and the way the song was going to flow. And so he did a very delicate uh, tom groove. And he said to me, let's put the snare beat on after. I do remember that he said, we're going to do an overdub here. And so uh, that's how we approached uh, I Was Made For You. But you'll hear the dynamics of how he moves with the song, how he um, dynamically moves those toms to make you feel like rolling emotion. Now, if you listened to part one of this special, I did mention how by accident I'd met Phil Collins in a restaurant and I knew he was a huge fan of this Scottish band, The Blue Nile. And so I lured him, actually lured him into playing on my album by saying um, PJ Moore and Blue Nile will be involved on my record. And Phil said that I'd like to play on it. Um, but what Phil didn't know was that I'd secretly invited the Blue Nile uh, down to the studio as Phil was playing. I thought that would be quite a cool thing to do. And lo and behold, uh, they arrived, which was great. And what was a wonderful thing was uh, while uh, Phil was playing on I Was Made For You, the Blue Nile were in the control room uh, watching him do his stuff. So Phil came through all sweating from the recording of the track into the control room and there were the boys there to greet him the blue now um, the band uh, as a whole so that was paul buchanan uh, pj moore and uh, robert bell it was wonderful to uh, watch phil come through from the studio and meet up with the blue now uh, he was very surprised uh, but it was a great vibe i mean uh, the, the, the lads gravitated to phil and he gravitated to them. A lovely postscript note about this is after Phil had played those songs and the Blue Nile weren't there, he said, I hope the Blue Nile enjoyed what I played. Do you think they really liked how I played? He was that humble. Now, we all know uh, how Phil Collins reveres Ringo Starr. I think because Ringo is such a song-oriented drummer, and I think that's what uh, Phil Collins brought to my songs. Um, in that capacity, I think he's the top boy. 
Uh, we were having so much fun. Phil said, what else have you got? And I had a, a song, Shape uh, the Invisible, which Jimmy Copley had excelled on, played beautifully, played wonderfully, and had emulated what the drum machine was and added more. As soon as Phil heard the track, he said, let me have a go at that. And I do have a version of Phil Collins playing Shape of the Invisible. He powered through the song. He played it with a straightforward force. It reminded me of Turn It On Again or Abacab. He had a pulse. He just ripped through it. But now I had a problem. I had two versions of Shape the Invisible, and they were both both very different, uh, different approaches. It took me some time to listen to how Jimmy Copley was portraying it with my drum machine, and uh, how Phil had done a big Genesis uh, uh, vibe on it. Um, I really had to st step back and make a decision. In the end, I thought Jimmy Copley and the way I'd programmed the drums was going to be the winner. But there were some wonderful Tom Phil's uh, by, uh, by Phil, and we know that's what he excels in. So I dropped those in on what uh, Jimmy Copley had originally done. So Shape the Invisible is a mixture of the two, mainly Jimmy being the blood of the song. And then we've got the rolling thunder of uh, Mr. Phil Collins. Now, when you get nearly to the end of an album, um, you start to hear things that you wouldn't have heard at the beginning or in the middle. And um, my song, uh, In My Room, I was thinking it was a, just a drum machine song. Uh, but then it occurred to me that it would be pretty amazing to try live drums uh, on this song. So I called my friend from the past, the great drummer, Trevor Thornton, and we dropped back into A&M Studios and uh, Trevor played live drums and I think he brought a pathos uh, to this really personal song of mine. And of course, uh, towards the end of an album, you say, let's try this, let's try that. Well, we can. And so we had Trevor play some tribal side sticks on the song Keeper of the Flame. And he also added a very, very, very low uh, drum to the song The Door that finished the album. Um, it was lovely to pick up a few things. You tend to do that when you're coming to the end. You go, let's give this a shot. And Trevor was there for that. We did hand claps at the same session with my manager and uh, her cousin, Susan Poncher. And uh, so we were bringing all the family in at the end as well. Overall, I was just thinking that everybody who'd been involved in the live playing, um, they were great friends and, and good souls. And I think that actually permeated the tape. I do believe that if you get um, good people together that really um, want to come together and want to add their compassion and their energy and their love and their excitement to the tracks, it becomes part of the process. I do think there's a magic in that with great teamwork. And I think in the House of Stone and Light, now that I'm looking back, I do think that uh, there seemed to be a family uh, involved on this record, and I think that can be heard and felt at the same time. Now, the next stage was uh, a big stage on this record. I had to be uh, on my own with everybody's performances, and I had to compile uh, the best of their work and actually create the tapestry in my own home studio. Now, I only had a 24-track tape recorder, and so um, I had to make slave reels so that you could incorporate a lot of the parts. So that made uh, another tape was brought in to uh, be a slave reel to the original tape. And that gave me more room. So I ultimately was working on something like 48 tracks. But this was the compiling period. Just like writing the songs on my own, that was a, this was another kind of um, 
very solitary job I had to do. Uh, I had most of the the performances and colours and visions in front of me. Now it was about sitting down with each song and compiling them. That's the best word for it, comping them, gluing them as such together and editing them as well. This was the early days of Pro Tools, digital editing. And so I was helped by Jeff Lorenzen in editing some of the live drum performances to be very tight and to mix very well with the drum programs that I'd initially programmed. So there was comping and editing and overall viewing of everything that had been done up to this point. This was a very, very focused period. I think this is a good time to end part two of the making of In the House of Stone and Light. In part three, I'm going to talk about uh, this compiling period, how difficult it was to see the whole picture. That will lead us on to the mixing of the album. And that's a whole, as I said before, a story unto itself. And I want to relate that to you, what the mixing process was. And then I'd like to tell you about the relationship I had with the record company and how we were going to break this record. That's when all the businessmen in suits got involved. That would lead me then on to uh, forming the live band and the touring of this album. And then eventually I'd like to talk about the legacy of what this record meant to me. Thank you for joining me for a Radio Owlsnest special here, uh, part two of the making of an In the House of Stone and Light. I hope you'll join me for part three of the making of the house. This is Martin Page saying goodbye. <laughs>